The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. All right, brothers. What we've got here is a breakout session, and it's uh, my desire in the next hour to kind of put some of what I was talking about this morning regarding the three different types of creationist models, try to unpack a little bit what that means, what each, each one is arguing, give some clarity as to why I myself cannot I just can't see legitimacy for an evolutionary creationist model in Scripture. Give clarity to what the old earth creationists are saying. And then offer for you, and there isn't enough time, but I'm going to do what I can. Offer for you my top six reasons why from the Bible... I'm a young earth creationist. And what you're going to see is that my final four are not found in Genesis at all. This is, however, um, I used to be much more driven about this issue. And what I've recognized is that um, as I've interacted with just godly men and women, godly men and women, who hold different perspectives than me, that they have very reasonable responses to every one of my six points that I will share later today uh, in, the, in the next hour. They have reasonable biblical responses to them, and they could be right. And so I don't believe there's a silver bullet exegetical statement from the Bible as we wrestle hard with the text, a single text or a single argument that I I don't think I'm going to come up with it, where all of a sudden, this is it. When I pull out my sharpshooter and bring this argument down, all of you are going to be convinced young earthers. I just don't think that, that, I don't think we're going to be able to have it, and I don't What I've grown to see is that I don't want to have a disposition that acts like I've got this down. This is one of those areas where within the in-house, I want to have an open hand and yet be able to have conviction about what I believe God is saying. And I'm going to try to, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm going to try to convince all of you for my position because I think it's what the Bible is saying and I got asked to teach today, so I get to share it. Uh, But... But I'm also saying it, recognizing full well that the Old Testament professor that I teach with at my school doesn't think the Bible requires what I'm thinking the Bible requires. And yet he's a scientist. He has his PhD in electrical engineering and his PhD in Hebrew Old Testament studies. And he says, I think the science pushes me to be an old earther. But the biblical text doesn't let me be an evolutionist. Old earther, what do I mean by that? That the earth is old, like billions of years old. Rather than relatively young, that's young earther, that that I would believe that the earth is relatively young. So there's two old earth models, evolutionary creationism and old earth creationism. Old earth is simply saying God didn't do it by evolutionary process. Whereas the evolutionary creationist is saying, God started with, um, how does my friend say it? He started with goo and it became the zoo. So that, that, but, but that God was in charge of it all. That's how the evolutionary creationist is arguing. And so we have the responsibility to open up our Bible and say, is, does it fit? Does it fit? So let me just pray as we enter in and then we will... Um, 
wrestle with some things. And I will make a note. We need to be done by 3.15. And that means Doroshi has to fly. It also means you won't get to ask your questions right now, at least many. But tomorrow morning, during our devotional window, um, it's just going to be a time for you to ask me some questions, and I'll do my best to answer them from the text. I'm actually going to have some time where we're going to, Lord willing, be able to raise some issues, and you'll be able to tell me major questions or that, that people have said, well, if, you're, if you hold to a young earth, how do you explain this? And you'll get to ask me some of those questions, and I'll try to answer them from the biblical text. Um, or this is what's kept me away from being a young earther because I don't know how to make this work. And then my responsibility will be to try to say, well, here's how I make it work. Let's pray. Father, our workshop here, uh, this breakout session, we don't have a lot of time, but we want you to be honored. I want you to be honored. I want your word to be held high. I want greater clarity to come out of disorder. So help us through Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. Right off the bat, um, I would, what I hold to would be called a 24-hour mature earth view, meaning that in seven days, God made the world. That each of those days included a morning and an evening, or an evening and a morning, rather, as it's laid out here. That, that this is an actual week, that that's how it's presented to us. Just on the surface, if a normal reader was to open up Genesis 1, they wouldn't be thinking every day is a thousand years. They'd be reading this. God called the light day, verse 5, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning the first day. That sounds like something you and I are very aware of. Not only that, it's fit within a seven-day structure. We call it a week. God is working for six days, and then he rests on the seventh. That's a framework that we understand. Why am I a 24-hour mature earth view? That God actually didn't go through some evolutionary process, but that when he spoke, things happened exactly as they're laid out here with maturity from the very beginning. And my initial response is simply to say, because that's what the Bible says right, right here. That's how it's laid out for me in a day pattern. Now notice that the, look at verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Just look at how the word day is used there. It's referring to the period between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., roughly, versus the night, which is when there's dark. So we, we have that in our category for what day means. Day means the time in the 24 hours that make a day. The day within the day is the light time. But then we see day used in a totally different way later in that verse. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In a single verse, we've got day used in two different ways. Dealing with the period of light in 24 hours and the entire 24 hours itself is called the day. Now within Genesis 1, that's the only um, use of day that we find. From Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3, it all falls within this framework of light is either, sorry, day is either when there's light out or day is what's happening over the entire 24-hour period that includes an evening and a morning. We, we can't go outside of that. And not only that, it fits within a seven-day period that we call a week. Now, there is a use of day that is different. If you turn over to Genesis 2-4... 
How do we use day here? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now all of a sudden, day is used a new way. How's it used? What's the day refer to here? General. General. A massive period of time that in light of Genesis 1, was seven full days. All seven days together is called the period or the day that God created the heavens and the earth. But you'll remember that I said that Genesis has ten occurrences of that phrase, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, and each one, I believe, is a heading introducing what follows. So the heading here reaches back and calls everything in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 in the day that God made everything, in that period. We use the same language when we think about the day of the Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period. It means an event. And that seems to be how it's being used in Genesis 2, 4. But that's section 2 of Genesis. In section 1 of Genesis... The only way that we see day used is with respect to a 24-hour window where there is evening and there is morning. So that's one reason why I'm a 24-hour mature earth guy. It's because on the surface of the text, that is how it's presented there's light, there's darkness, there's one week, and there's this refrain, there was evening and there was morning. Next would be the pattern of the Sabbath. Even before God reveals himself at Mount Sinai, think about this, before they even get to Mount Sinai, that's when they get all these laws that includes keep my Sabbath. But before they get there, in Genesis, sorry, in Exodus 16, they already are aware of the Sabbath pattern. They're aware of a one week, and God calls Israel to follow the six plus one pattern of life. Working six days on the seventh day, you can't get manna. They're already aware of it. And the question I have is, where did they learn it from? A solar day, as I said last night, there is a solar day, that is... The day is a scientific, natural component wherein the sun, sorry, the earth rotates in relation to a fixed, ob, fixed uh, source of light. It creates a day. The lunar month, the solar year, they're all set by the earth's rotation and its annual revolution around the sun. But the week, the week has no astronomical connection. How did Israel already in Exodus 16 know about the week? Know about the pattern of Sabbath? I suggest it's because God called Israel to keep the Sabbath. The seventh day that he called them, it's because he had already made the Sabbath. He had already set out a pattern from which he could talk like this. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work because we're simply imaging God. In this instance, He created the heaven and the earth in six days, the sea and all that is in them, and then He rested on the seventh. So this has, this has no connection with astronomy. And the only way I can explain that they were aware of it is because... This is actually how God did it in the beginning. Now, treating the original week as figurative, surprise, sorry. Oh yeah, wait. My handouts are not legitimate yet. Give me a second. Treating the original week as figurative supplies no actual analogy. If it's not an actual week, then... And if Genesis 1 is something that God reveals to Moses, the question is, how did they know about the Sabbath? Um, 
it, it doesn't seem to provide an actual analogy, but if God indeed created in six days and then rested on the seventh, then Israel gained a solid pattern around which to base their lives. Now this leads to some questions, but I'm going to stop right there and then I'm going to go, I'm going to talk now and just say that my friend John, who teaches with me at my school, he's the two PhD dude, he affirms that Genesis 1 is portraying literal days like you and I know them. He recognizes that this is an actual week, that, that day ages just, they, they really don't fit into the text because there's evening and there's morning. There's light and there's dark. There's seven of them. The way that it talks, it doesn't allow for, it, it, the way that it's being presented to us is indeed an actual work week of God. But what he suggests is that, and then he also recognizes the, the pattern that I laid out last um, last night, where there's three days of filling what was uninhabitable or what was formless and giving it form, making it habitable. And then there's three days where all those spheres that have now been crafted to actually house people, house things, uh, they get filled. What was formless takes form and what, is, what was empty now gets content. He recognizes that. But what he understands is that this whole week, the pattern, the structure, all the literary features simply point to massive artistry that's created this week, not denying the history behind it, but that the week itself and all the days within them, it's just a literary pattern, a literary structure, like a giant poem that expresses beauty and expresses a message. But the point, the point of the passage, just think about last night. My goal, and I believe it was Moses' goal, was to help us understand who God was, who we are, where we live, and what's wrong with the world. And all that, whether it's literary artistry or an actual chronological expression of how it happened, that message is still communicated. And my my partner, John, he would just say, I don't think the Bible is actually requiring this 24-hour day reading. You can have literal days in a metaphorical week, a figurative week, if the purpose was to tell us something else. So he's an old earth creationist, meaning that he thinks the Bible is open. It doesn't require, believe me, if I could sell John, and in our conversations, it's slowly moving. He's, I'm becoming more cordial because he's able to respond to a number of my arguments. And he's becoming more, huh, scratching his head, thinking about things. And I haven't laid out those, those arguments yet. But he, um, I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind that if I was to convince him from Scripture that the Bible requires a young earth, he would become a young earth creationist immediately by conviction, regardless of what the science says. He would say, we have to figure out, I'll have to gain new explanations for what I thought the science was teaching, because in his life, the Bible is the highest authority, and that's the kind of guy I want to hang out with. That's the kind of guy I want to teach alongside of. Even though he has come to different conclusions on this issue than I, I have. We have the same elevated scripture. And if I can prove him that this is what the Bible requires for you and I to believe, he'll believe it. So just know that as I lay this out, even if you think, wow, this is really convincing, just know that there's people like John who are offering solid pushback on every single point. So my argument is a, my argument is a cumulative argument. But what might there be in the text, the biblical text that for both John and I would say we can't be evolutionists? Well, let's just look at Genesis 1 and consider the creation of animals. What I want us to look at is verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. 
livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. The text is suggesting God made distinctions. Indeed, as multiplication would happen, it would be according to kinds. Now, one brother this morning said, in denying, in, in saying you don't think evolution fits in the Bible, are you, are you denying that there could be uh, what he called microevolution? Not at all. I call that adaptation within species. And we see that all over the place. I saw it in my own children. I have, three of, I have six children, three of them from Ethiopia. My son moves from living on the equator. He arrives at MSP airport on January 7th. <laughs> and, I mean, this boy is used to running around with no clothes on. And all of a sudden, he arrives at the airport, and mommy and daddy had prepared. We had the snow, I mean, he looked like a marshmallow, the snow outfit all the way down. He's two and a half years old, and he walks outside through the double sliding doors of MSP right out of the baggage claim, and he's hit with, uh, I think it was 20 or 30 below wind chill. And it was, <gasps> his lungs had never faced it. But by the end of the winter, he had adapted. And... When it says, for example, that two kinds of every animal were on the ark, it doesn't mean that there were boxers and Dobermans and sheepdogs. It could just mean there was dog. That Adam had to name everything within a single 24-hour period. Why do I believe that? Because animals and Eve and, and the man and the woman were both created on day six. But in Genesis 2, Adam names the, all the animals before God puts him to sleep and brings all the animals to him. But it doesn't mean when he named all the animals that he had to name every type of animal. It would suggest that he had to name major categories, potentially. Like, we don't know what kinds is and how kinds relates to species, as we understand it scientifically. But... In my mind, all it would necessarily have to mean is that he said dog, cat, dinosaur. And he went through them. And if you have a question, how would that be possible? I can tell you, I, I can show us uh, how I think it would be possible um, in a little tongue-in-cheek way. But the... According to their kinds, the text says that, and that to me and my buddy suggests, I don't think that actually fits with an evolutionary model. You've got to do a lot of gymnastics to say that God created each according to its kind and stretch that out over billions of years of transformations and mingling and molding, and all of a sudden you're like, I, think, I don't think that's what the text says. Similarly, in Genesis chapter 2, Look at verse 7. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living creature. Now an evolutionist who wants to be faithful to the text is forced to say, well, that's just figurative. Meaning that God created man out of something. And where that something was at some form in the past, was very broken down like dust. Some kind of matter that over billions of years of evolutionary processes finally becomes a man. Yet when I look at the text, I, it just seems forced to me. Out of dust you came, to dust you shall return. It seems to me like, like you're bringing a model and forcing it on the text rather than allowing your own understanding of the world to grow out of the text. And because of that, I, I struggle to know how to fit evolutionary creationism. I can go head-to-head -head with my buddy John, text after text, and I'm, I'm going to offer you a 
um, a chance, we'll do it right now. I say I hold to a 24-hour mature earth view. What are the biggest obstacles that have been raised in your mind or in the minds of your people when they've said, you hold this, how, tell me what, how do, you, how do you answer this dilemma? Anything at all. Well, I'm not fishing for anything. You just raise your questions. Okay, now, out of necessity, I would be, I give my time to biblical studies, and I would be like an elementary kid with respect to the sciences, maybe not quite that low, but I can talk about science a little bit, um, for example, but, but, but that's not, I, I don't want to focus there just because it's not my... It's not my area of study. But I will say that with respect to the fossil record, um, there, are, there are so many different ways to date things. And there are problems with dating for people who believe in a young earth, and there's problems for dating with respect to people who believe in an old earth. But usually when you're talking to one group or another, all that you hear are the arguments for dating from, that support their view. So just keep that in mind, that there's, there's lots of different ways to date things. And a stone maintains its nature unless it encounters something that can create leaching or change its state. Leaching is where something is sucked out of that stone. Some kind of a chemical is pulled out of it and it changes from one type to a different type of stone. It can get harder or it can get softer based on pressure and heat. Catastrophe alters stones. Because what catastrophe is, say, an earthquake or a volcano. Pardon? Earthquake or volcano, all of a sudden, there's heat and there's pressure. And it alters the state of rocks. And the Bible's filled with that kind of catastrophe. In fact, that's exactly how it describes what happens at the flood. Very little of the flood was caused by rain. Most of it was caused by the waters of the deep opening up. That's what we're told. Heat and pressure added to rocks. Now, with respect to animal life, there's different layers of strata with respect to fossils. And the most basic microorganisms are usually found at the bottom. And then as you move up, there's development. Naturally, that's been seen as ages, and uh, evolutionary models, whether creationist or non-creationist, have held to five different ice ages within the uh, billions of years that the Earth is around. And it's created different, and the ice ages have all been brought about by catastrophe. And as the evolutionary process developed, and that's how they read the different layers, uh, this is the pattern of evolution. That's what we're seeing. The challenge, of course, is that we don't see the missing links are ever found between each layer as you move from a lower form of creature to a higher form of creature. We don't have examples of those missing links, and we can't look around and see if evolution is actually happening. Why aren't we able to identify missing links now? like creatures that are in the process of moving from human to something else. We can't find them. Um, it seems very natural to me to also explain the fossil record from a different perspective, and that is that when you take a jar made up of different soils and you shake it up, all of a sudden it'll lay down in different layers. And then if you add um, tides and storms, 
all of a sudden there can be waves in those layers. And if you've got creatures in there and the water is moving in at different rates, it's natural that the biggest creatures are going to be climbing to higher elevations and be dying at higher levels. We know that on May 18th, 1980, the world gets rocked by one of the most cataclysmic events of the 20th century, Mount St. Helens. And Mount St. Helens is an unbelievable example of a miniature Grand Canyon being formed with strat stratigraphic layers, with massive floating wood mats, with wood being um, raised just like this, like we see in the Grand Canyon, with fossilization happening in less than 30 years. Fossilization. That the pressure that was brought about by that was creating fossils when in the past people thought they would take billions of years. But all that's related to science. And again, it's not my... Theoretical science. Theoretical science. Yeah. In the sense that no one was there to watch it happen. And we always have to keep that in mind. And one, here's another reason why I why I'm prone to leave the Bible as the highest authority is because God was there, and I wasn't. So you can't change the data. You can only change the interpretation of the data, and what you're approaching the data with, the different presuppositions you have, impacts the conclusions you arrive at. And if you've got a big enough framework that says God can do miracles, um, it does always make it difficult to date miracles. But, um, I mean, things like the water into wine, they thought it had been the oldest wine and it had just appeared. When Jesus took the, the man who, with the eye that was blind, he couldn't see, and all of a sudden he's, he makes a new eye. It didn't start like a baby's eye. He could see, and babies, when they first come out of the womb, can't see. All of a sudden it was like he could see everything. The man with the withered hand didn't start out with a kid's hand, and he had to, you know, he's got an, a, a, an adult body, and all of a sudden, uh, that adult body has to, he's got an adult body but a baby's hand when Jesus healed the hand. No, he gave him a man's hand that looked like it had been his hand forever. And you can't date those kind of miracles. But in your young earth position, <coughs> would you say that his rest on the seventh day stayed within that day frame? God's rest on the seventh day. Yes rather than that seventh day continuing on? Yeah, I, I, um, there's no ending formula. There was evening and there was morning the seventh day. But the whole purpose of the ending formula was to carry out the work week. And the work week is over at the end of the seventh day, and so it, I don't see the need to have that concluding formula. And then in the book of John, we see Jesus declare, me and my Father are working. Suggesting that God's not resting anymore. Instead, he's working to fix the problems that were caused by the fall. And in my next period, when we walk through Genesis 1, one of the areas that we're going to talk about is that Sabbath rest and how it sets a trajectory for Israel's purpose in this world and ask the question, how does it relate to us as believers? have a sense that creation didn't stop after six days. And what we see, even now, is God's hand. It's, a, it's a, a continuation of creation. Every time a baby is born, the whole process, it's, it's him. It's his, it's his doing. I mean, that's, that's just a sensation I have of what is going on around me. That it, we can't just write it off as nature. It's natural for us to, it's a tendency in all of us to think about, yeah, God made the earth. And often the Bible talks about that as if it was made. And then, I mean, the maker isn't here. He's just let me buy his watch and I can go where I want and it's still ticking. But the way that the author of Hebrews talks is that right now, Jesus is upholding everything by the word of his power. He's speaking it, speaking it, speaking it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5, it says 
And it's, it's a fascinating, the reason I remember the verse is because it, it stuck out to me when I preached uh, from a nearby text this last fall. It doesn't use the, the word we're common, used to finding, the, the form of the word for, bar, for create that, we're used to find, that we usually find. Usually the one we find is that God created as if it's past tense. But here in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5, it specifically says God is creating. And the form of the verb that it used, it has no beginning and no end. It's focused on the, the process. And it would support exactly what you're saying, that God, that God is still, still creating right now. And if he stops creating, we're, in, we're done. That, and by that creating, meaning that he's upholding everything, guiding what he's doing. And so that every baby we can call, this is a miracle birth, a gift of God. So that every marriage that happens... Jesus can say what God brought together, let no man put asunder. He didn't just make Adam and Eve's marriage. Every single marriage is made by God. So I think that's getting to what you're talking about. Yeah, and so there has to be a purpose. There has to be a purpose because God doesn't do, God isn't a creator with randomness. He's, he's creator with purpose. Uh, how did dinosaurs fit into my view? Thank you, <laughs> Pastor Brandon. Um, I, at jasonderoshi.com, it's just what it is. You can pass these out. Um, and it's listed at the top of here. You can just type in dinosaurs, and I've got a blog post where I talk about it. But I'll say a couple things, and that is that it seems to me very naturally understood, first of all, that Jurassic Park, this is my view in contrast to my friend John's view, Jurassic Park was not happening prior to the fall. Every old earth model requires thousands and thousands and thousands of years of animal death and suffering. That's where the fossils came from. Before the fall, before humans were ever on the scene, we've got thousands of years of animal death and suffering, including predatory activity, including cancer in dinosaurs, tumors that we've found in fossilized organisms. And it requires then to say that's not evil. And my view would say there were dinosaurs prior to the fall, Humans were not in any danger, and that I'm not certain, although it's not a huge issue, but I'm not, it, it, it would, I would highly question that dinosaurs were eating any meat prior to the fall. Then after the fall, changes happened. Cursed are you more than all the other creatures. And part of those changes, it seems, are not only... Um, Changes in the makeup of the animal, but in the desire of the animal. So that now animals desire to eat other animals, and animals desire to eat people. To have all the dinosaurs on the ark requires only, don't, I mean, you don't have to have the brontosaurus, even though there's no such thing. What are they called now? Um, whatever. Even Tyrannosaurus rex. Um, you could just have a dinosaur on the flood, on the ark, or certain types of dinosaurs that fall into different classes. Um, and you also don't have to have adults, adult dinosaurs. You could have baby dinosaurs. And if God said bring two, then I can trust that he's going to preserve them. And I suggest that at least most of the dinosaurs probably died in the ice age that followed the flood. And I think there's only one ice age in my overarching model. But again, this is just a model and the Bible doesn't talk about such things. But an ice age would very naturally be created through a, um, a global flood. Um, I think that it's global. 
One reason is because the birds can't get away and you've got to keep them on the ark. If it's not a global flood, they can just fly over the hill and still be preserved. A global flood and that the dinosaurs, most of them would have died off afterwards. But throughout history, there's still stories of giant beasts that we would consider dinosaur-like that, that were faced at different times, but they would all be extinct today. Let me, because um, time is so short, let me make a few, because you guys didn't raise them, I'll raise them. Can we have a day and night without the sun? What's at stake here to make day and night is only a fixed source of light. You don't need a sun to make day and night. You need a fixed source of light to make day and night. The dilemma of thinking that we could have three days without the sun and yet there's day and night, the dilemma is raised by what we would call uniformitarian, uniformitarity. That everything has been functioning in a uniform way from the very beginning until now. Catastrophe alters uniformitarianism. But we also have a God who can alter things as he will. The sun is not needed for day and night. What's needed is a fixed light and a rotating earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're told that night will be no more. Yet it's a new earth and there will be light. Why? Because there's a fixed source. And who is that source? God. God is the source at the end. Could he not have been the source at the beginning? The way that John opens his gospel, what does he do? He echoes John uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. This is Genesis 1. Without Him, not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was light. It was the light of men. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Paul, 2 Corinthians 4.6, let light, the, the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, that's Genesis 1 verse 3, has shone into our hearts and given us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I'm proposing that he's thinking about those early, that early part and he's not getting bound up by the sun as the chief source of light. The sun is ultimately an agent of the sustaining power of God. It is the means that he is using right now, but it is an unnecessary means for sustaining life. And he could have sustained life the first three days. He can sustain it into the future. Let me... Handouts. Did everybody get a handout? Everybody have one? Let's just look at these for a second. Um... This may be useful before we jump into that sheet. Okay, here's the question. How much could have really happened on day six? Could you, can you really, because in day six, it says that God has to create animals and he has to create humans, men and women. So then we get the, into that focus in Genesis 2 of what actually happened between the time God made the man and the time that God made the woman. So what kinds of things have to happen? This is what has to happen. God has to create the animals. He has to create the man. He has to tell the man the parameters for life. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can um, serve and guard the sphere that I'm placing you in. Man has to name all the animals. God has to create the woman. And the man and woman have to get married in one day. Is it possible? Yes, anything, anything is possible. So let me just see. Um, here's what I want to offer. How could it have played out? Just a proposal. You can lay it in front of your friends who are questioning whether it's really possible. 6 a.m. God makes the animals. Okay, all right. 6.01. God takes counsel with himself to make man. Sounds good. So God makes man at 6.02. He makes Adam from the dust of the ground. 605, God starts to plant the garden. We're talking about God here. He, he can move like this, right? 610, the garden is complete. 
It's God. Is anything impossible? No. He knew what he wanted to do. He already had the boxes built, the uh, raised beds, and, and off he went. God puts the man into the garden, 611, 612. God warns Adam about the forbidden tree. Don't, don't touch this one. 613, Adam has breakfast. It's, he's a guy. He needs, I should have put in a second breakfast. 630, so I gave him, you know, I gave him uh, 17 minutes to eat his breakfast, which is more time than I take in the morning getting ready. 6.30, God reveals his plan for a helper. God brings the animals to, for Adam to name. 6.31, now this is going to take a while. There's lots of really cool animals out there, and he's got to work it. So, so it takes him until 3 p.m. And uh, so I gave him eight and a half hours, and he's weary, so he takes a nap. When he wakes up, he meets Eve. 25-minute nap. It was, it was just that short uh, power, power nap, and all is well. He meets Eve, and the two get married. 329, I mean, it was a short wedding, you know. <laughs> It'd be great. Uh, most of them were like that. God blesses Adam and Eve with his commission at 329, two hours until sunset to be naked and unashamed. And, and I say, um, what's so hard about that? So, now, I have such a short amount of time, and I will say, if you go to jasonderoshi.com and you type in, in the search engine, creation, you can get what I'm about to do in 10 minutes in an hour and a half. And then, if you want it even more thick, you can download the... 45-page PDF that walks through each of these six points with loaded scripture and gives clarity to why I'm a convinced young earth creationist. Here's my six arguments. Number one, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 places humanity within the first week of creation. Sounds basic, but I want you to recognize that they're in the text in day six not day six billion or beyond. It's just on the surface, this is what we see. They're part of the first week. Number two, the New Testament closely associates the history of Genesis 2-4 with the beginning of the world. Now, me and the brothers, uh, Pastor Tom and Pastor Brandon, were talking for some time about uh, these texts, and I want to just draw our attention to them now because they're significant. What I'm wanting to see is that Jesus does not want to distance what takes place in Genesis 2 and 3 from the beginning. But if billions of years happen between the time God started things Billions of years pass, and then everyone agrees that we have a relatively recent humanity. Then it would be strange to talk about the beginning in the bottom of the ninth. Did you see what happened at the beginning of the game? Yeah, it was the ninth inning. But that's what we're forced to say if we want to separate mankind from the beginning. Jesus won't do that. And that's why I think Jesus was a young earth creationist. Jesus saw... The, you can laugh. So Jesus saw that the um, institution of marriage was closely linked to the beginning. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. It seems as though he's not wanting to separate Genesis 1-1 from the creation of men and women by billions of years. He's wanting to see the beginning linked to them. And that suggests to me that we can't separate it by either an old earth model or by billions of years of evolutionary processes. Jesus declared that Satan's murderous activity that Brother Brandon was talking about, not just his tendency, but the actual activity through his deception of Eve was closely associated with the beginning of creation. You are of your father the devil, offspring of the woman, offspring of the serpent. You, 
think you're sons of Abraham? Well, biologically, sure. But really, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not just had a tendency toward murder from the beginning. No, he was murdering. When he was in Genesis 3, bringing death to Adam and Eve, it was from the beginning. Jesus linked this murderous, sinful activity with the promise that the offspring of the woman would stand in friction with the serpent and his offspring. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So where do we see the sin of the devil? We see it in Genesis 3, and that's why Jesus came to fix the Genesis 3 problem. And the Genesis 3 problem was at the beginning. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That is the hope that the sun would appear to crush the head of the serpent. And it's associated with the beginning. Jesus saw the first human experience of tribulation as being located near the beginning of creation. And I think it's referring to Cain's killing of Abel. For in those days there will be such tribulation in the future as had not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. There was tribulation back there. But what we will see in the future is nothing like from all time, stretching all the way back to when Cain killed Abel, that tribulation... It, it hasn't ever gotten, it, it's, it's only going to be, it's going to be so much worse than anything we've seen all the way back there to the beginning. Jesus placed the martyrdom of Abel near the foundation of the world. The wisdom of God says, I will send the prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world. So the rest of the world is the structure. But the foundation of the building was finished at day six. And then the fall happens. From the blood of Abel, that was the foundation of the world. Right after the foundation was laid, Abel dies. The writer of Hebrews considered the foundation of the world to be the conclusion of the sixth day, placed humanity's rebellion for which Jesus suffered very near this time, and he contrasted the foundation with the end of the ages realized in the work of Christ. That's a lot. Let's see if we can get it. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, that's the creation, the first six weeks, he completed those works, and God rested on the seventh day. Hebrews 9, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year, for then Jesus would have had to have been suffering repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Jesus' suffering is due to sin, and therefore sin is being tied to the foundation of the world, not billions and billions of years after that foundation. Number three, Genesis's Linear genealogies. Linear genealogy is in contrast to segmented genealogies. We have three segmented genealogies uh, in the headings of Genesis. Segmented genealogies, when it says, these are the generations of Esau. What follows is Esau gave birth to A, B, and C. A had all these kids, B had all these kids, and C had all these kids. It's segmented. Everyone is broken up in its own grouping. Whereas a linear genealogy says A gave birth to B and there were other kids. B gave birth to C and there were other kids. C gave birth to D and there were other kids. But it doesn't tell us anything about those other kids. And what I'm saying is that when I read, if you've got your Bibles, just turn to Genesis 5, and I've, I can only touch on this now. What we see in Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah is a linear genealogy that is unlike any other genealogy in the Bible. Genealogies can have genealogical gaps. Some biblical genealogies don't include everybody between person A and person D. 
It'll just say A gave birth to D. Think about the genealogy in Matthew 1.1. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a genealogy. And it says that David, that Jesus was David's son. Well, he was. His great, 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 super great grandson. And David was the son of Abraham, but by so many generations. So you can have genealogies like that. What I'm saying is that Genesis 5 starts with Adam. And if Adam is close to the beginning, then we get Adam. Now we get a type of genealogy that I struggle to see. Even if there's genealogical gaps, meaning there might be individuals missing, there's not chronological gaps. Notice the specificity of this genealogy. When Adam had lived 130 years, so you can put Adam's creation, now move up 130 years, and it says, he fathered his son in his own likeness. The days of Adam after he fathered that son were 800. So chronology is working. From the beginning of the time when Adam came out of dust, 130 years passed and he fathered a son. And I believe it was his direct descendant. But even if it was multiple descendants after him, he was still 130 years when that son came. And it was 800 years after that that he died. And after that son came, then it says, Seth lived 105 years after he fathered Enosh. And Enosh lived 807 years. These are the only genealogies in the Bible that include such dates. The specific chronological dates, it seems to me, require a very young humanity. And if humanity is bound up to the beginning, then that means we have a young earth. Number four, the unique role that God gives to humans in general, and Adam in particular in the first creation, makes it likely that humans would have been part of the first creation from the earliest stages. All I'm wanting to say here is that Humans in Genesis 1 are the climax of creation. They're the overseers of creation. Adam is the head of the covenant that represents all of the rest of the world. What he does matters for everyone else. So because God is so concerned about displaying his greatness, it makes sense to me that right up there close to the beginning of the world, which is all created in order to display his greatness, he puts humanity as the culmination. It would make sense that that humanity would not come billions of years after the start of the whole process. If, if they're the climax of the created activity, and if they are the means by which God is displayed in ways that no other creature on earth can display them, and if they're supposed to oversee all the rest of the creatures and govern all the rest of the land so that it doesn't go crazy. Notice there's still fields. Everything, meaning that they hadn't been overcome by forests. That the point is that humans are at the climax, and so it makes sense to me that um, we wouldn't divide humanity from, its, or from the origin of the world too quickly. When he stands up and walks back there, it's the signal for me to say, it's time to wrap it up. Here's number five. Scripture usually portrays the death and suffering of living creatures as curse. I've got a, a whole list of, of these. Um, let me see if I can bring up a few. Can you think of any? Think of examples where the death of animals is actually linked with curse. Specify Romans 8. What are you getting at? Well, all creation groans. All creation groans. And we would think that that would include the animal kingdom and that the creation itself is longing to be redeemed. We know that humanity's sin had a consequence for all the creatures. God, for all the rest of the world, God cursed the animals. Cursed are you more than the rest of the animals suggests that the animals are cursed. And we have to have a framework that says what changed in the animals. If Jurassic Park was already happening before the fall, 
Is the only change that now they start to eat humans and before they didn't? Or is there actual changes in the animal kingdom in that they now also begin to die? They also begin to decay. The ground is cursed. And, as Greg said, the whole world is subject, subjected to futility. So we have to ask, what changed? If the world is cursed, what does it mean that the world is cursed? What went bad? What does it look like? It doesn't just say humans were cursed, and now we're going to die. It says the rest of the world was cursed. And how is it different? How is the, the time after the fall different from the time before the fall? Think about sacrifices. That's a curse. Animals are dying in relation to curse. They're standing as substitutes for sin. That's why they're dying. At the flood, it's not just human sin that brings about the flood. The text actually says the violence of all flesh, and then it defines all flesh as including the animals. Something about their activity was, rep was uh, reproachable and demanded the death. And I think it's most likely that they were killing and eating humans. The plagues. Eight of the ten plagues against Egypt included the death of livestock. Why this is important is because an old earth model requires thousands and thousands of years of animal death and suffering that has nothing to do with the curse. That has nothing to do with sin. That that's actually not bad. Cancer is not bad unless it's in humans. That's what an old earth model, I think, requires. If a human has cancer, we can call it natural evil. But if your cat dies, it's not natural, it's not natural evil. Because all of that death was happening and suffering was happening for thousands of years before we arrive at the fall in an old earth model. But a young earth model says, no, all that death, all that suffering only arose as a result of human sin. We're wrapping it up here. It's supposed to be. The preacher of Ecclesiastes. This is significant, building off of something Brandon said. Brandon's text. You'll remember in Genesis 3.19, it said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. From dust you were taken, to dust you shall return. That is the curse against humans in Genesis 3. It's not mentioning anything about animals dying. It's talking about humans dying. But when the preacher in Ecclesiastes is talking about the fact that both men and dogs go to the same place, he quotes Genesis 2 which suggests that when he's thinking about dogs dying, he's, not thinking, he's actually thinking that's part of the curse. The animal's death is part of the curse. That's what he's identifying it with. What happens to the children of man happens to the beast. As one dies, so another dies. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust return. So it seems to me he's echoing the curse of Genesis 2.17, which would then suggest that even animal death comes as a result of that curse and wasn't happening before the fall. Final statement. Scripture appears to connect every bit of the creation's futility with the curse. And it treats Christ's reconciliation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth as the answer to this problem. If all the world's problems, all death and all suffering, not just of humans, but of all the rest of the world, comes as a result of sin, human sin. And if Jesus came to fix the curse, reconciling all things to God, meaning that things were interrupted so that they weren't reconciled to him. The reconciliation of all things to God through the cross what he's doing there is bearing the curse of God in the place of everything. He's redeeming everything, not just humanity. Then it seems to me to suggest that what Jesus is fixing is a curse problem and not a creation problem.
that the creation in the beginning wasn't Jurassic Park, but the, rather that Jurassic Park came after the fall. And that would then push me to a young earth rather than an old earth. Because all sin and death then would have, all death and suffering would have been an outgrowth not of the original creation, but of specifically the sin of mankind. Six reasons why, from the Bible, I'm a young earth guy. That's it. That's why I, why I am a convinced young earther. You could go, as I said, to jasondroshi.com, type in creation, and you could get more. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason Deroshi. Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Deroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Claiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.